Well, good afternoon, ladies and uh, gentlemen. Welcome. I'm Robert George. I'm the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions uh, here at uh, Princeton, and it's the Madison Program that is uh, sponsoring this afternoon's lecture and uh, conversation. Uh, it's a great privilege uh, to uh, introduce my esteemed uh, colleague and dear friend, Professor Keith Whittington. Professor Whittington is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics uh, here at Princeton. Uh, and is the author of numerous important, widely uh, reviewed uh, works, uh, including Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy, subtitled The Presidency, the Supreme Court, and Constitutional Leadership in the U.S. History, uh, which won the C. Herman Pritchett Award for the Best Book in Law and the Courts, and the J. David Greenstone Award for Best Book in Politics and History of the American Political Science Association. Uh, he is uh, also uh, the co-author of the casebook, American Constitutionalism, which won an award for innovative instructional materials in law and the courts uh, for the American Political Science Association. Uh, Professor Whittington earned his undergraduate degree at the University of Texas and his MA and PhD degrees from, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, Yale University. <laughs> uh, uh, it was just a few years ago. Uh, that uh, uh, Yale uh, and Harvard uh, came a calling uh, for Professor uh, Whittington and uh, those of us here at Princeton, especially those of us uh, who work in the areas of public law and jurisprudence, were shaking in our boots for fear that we would uh, lose uh, Keith. Uh, but he did uh, the right thing. Uh, faced with a choice between Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, he stuck with Princeton. I'm forever grateful, Keith, to you for, uh, for doing that. Uh, some time back, uh, Professor Whittington uh, got in touch with me to say that uh, he had in his mind an idea for a book on freedom of speech just at the time when uh, freedom of speech was really becoming a big issue on campuses uh, around, the, around the country. Some of the things you've been reading about uh, in the newspapers were happening, speakers being disinvited, speakers being shut down, speakers being shouted down. Uh, and I dare say that this was part of what was in Keith's mind when he thought that uh, he really should put his mind uh, to a defense of free speech, especially uh, in the context of education and most especially in the context of uh, higher education. He was in touch with me because I edited a series for Princeton University Press called uh, New Forum Books and Keith uh, suggested absolutely rightly uh, that it would make a good book uh, for the series and I jumped at the chance as did Princeton University Press and Keith produced a wonderful manuscript, which is now the book, Speaking Freely, which is available from Labyrinth Book uh, Bookshop outside um, uh, this, uh, this room, uh, where Keith can sign it for you, if you like, if you want to uh, buy a copy. Uh, at that time, uh, I thought, gee, uh, this would be a great book once Keith is finished with it. I knew it would be a great book, but it would be a great book for the pre-read. Princeton, like so many campuses these days, uh, assigns its new freshmen. Uh, a book that would be the common reading for the, uh, for the class, something that they could all discuss together and have seminars and forums and various discussion groups uh, built, uh, built around. Uh, and so our hope was that uh, President Eisgruber, who chooses for Princeton what the pre-read will be for each freshman class, uh, would seriously uh, consider and ultimately choose uh, Keith's book, given the timeliness of the topic of free speech on campus and the importance of free speech especially here at Princeton, where free speech really is valued. Uh, we were the second university after the University of Chicago to adopt the University of Chicago's excellent free speech uh, principles, which I think 
helps to explain why we haven't had some of the atrocities here that have been experienced on other campuses. But uh, then Professor Eisgruber did the right thing and chose Speaking Freely by Keith Whittington as the, uh, as the, as the pre-read. And you're getting a preview uh, this afternoon of the pre-read. Uh, uh, President Eisgruber has uh, informed us that he is distributing the book not only to the new freshmen, but to uh, all members of our uh, campus community. He thinks the book is that good, which he's absolutely right about, and that the issue is uh, that important. Uh, so it's just a delight uh, to uh, welcome, uh, on behalf of the entire uh, Madison program, uh, our friend and colleague, Keith Whitting. So thank you. I appreciate um, y'all coming out um, today. Uh, it's interesting being back in this room. I think this was actually the first room I taught a class in uh, when I first arrived um, at Princeton. Um, and I've been very fortunate um, during my time um, at Princeton. As Robbie notes, um, Princeton's very good um, on a lot of free speech um, issues. Um, I think the campus um, has, in general, taken quite a good approach, and now we're under um, presidential leadership of somebody who um, takes free speech and intellectual diversity on college campuses extremely um, seriously, and that's always um, helpful. Um, and so when thinking about um, a book like this, um, my first concern in some ways was not so much about free speech um, necessarily at Princeton University, where I felt uh, relatively confident um, about um, how students and faculty alike uh, tend to think about um, uh, these issues, um, but instead was thinking increasingly about um, problems that were occurring across um, universities, um, not only across the United States, really, um, but in uh, a number of countries um, in which um, students, faculty, and administrators um, seem not to adequately appreciate um, the value of their own institutions and what those uh, institutions are fundamentally committed to, um, but also the value of free speech within those institutions. Um, and so it seems useful to try to think about uh, producing a book that um, was accessible and short, but tried to walk people through um, some understanding of why we ought to care about universities. And if you, we do care about universities, uh, why then we ought to care um, about protecting free speech uh, within universities. Um, so hopefully the book um, uh, contributes to that um, uh, conversation and helps us sort of reaffirm a set of values that I think um, universities have been committed to um, for quite some time uh, and hopefully will be continue to be committed to uh, for quite some time uh, in the future. Um, so I should begin by noting that I don't think these issues are uh, new issues on American college campuses, but they are newly relevant. Um, the details change, but free speech has frequently been a subject of controversy on college campuses, uh, with some members of the campus community urging more freedom and others advocating for more restraints. Outside interests have regularly involved themselves in those controversies, seeing the fate of free speech on campus as having important implications for social and political disputes being fought elsewhere. And I take the existence of a serious debate over the scope of free speech on American college campuses as a given, um, but I hope to provide here some reasons for resisting restrictions on speech within those debates. Um, the argument I want to develop here is that we should understand free speech as central to the mission of a modern university. The right of free speech is not an extrinsic value to a university that has to be imposed by outside forces to serve ends that have no immediate connection to the goals of higher education itself. Rather, the value of free speech is closely associated with the core commitments of the university itself. If we value what universities do and the role that they play within American society, then we must likewise value free speech in universities. So let's begin by thinking about the mission of the university itself. Part of the wonder of higher education in America is its diversity. 
Despite this diversity, modern American universities share, nonetheless, some fundamental features in common. At heart, the mission of a university, as I understand it, is to produce and disseminate knowledge. Not every university can or should want to do that in the exact same way. Uh, no university seeks to produce knowledge simply or disseminate it indiscriminately. Choices must be made about how to advance that general mission. Uh, but all universities are recognizably engaged in that common enterprise of producing and disseminating knowledge. And the scholarly work of producing knowledge is inescapably bound up with the effort to communicate what has been learned. Scholarship is a conversation, a conversation that extends across generations and extends across the globe. And to shut oneself off from that conversation is to shut oneself off from the scholarly enterprise itself. In order to realize this core mission of the university of producing and disseminating knowledge and the many subsidiary benefits that come from universities fulfilling that mission, a robust commitment to free speech on campus is essential. Universities seek to constitute communities dedicated to experimentation, discussion, and learning, and the university should welcome anyone who is willing to join such a community. And if the production and dissemination of knowledge is a central mission of the modern <coughs> university, then how does free speech relate to that mission? Free speech, I think, is constitutive of modern university because the principles of free speech are critical tools to sustaining the project of intellectual inquiry that expands our knowledge and conveys that knowledge to others. Universities need to provide a wide scope to free speech, not because they need to secure the preconditions of the democratic process or free and fair elections, or to check government power, or to provide opportunities for authentic self-expression. Um, they need to protect the speech because that is how scholars can make progress in refining our understanding of the world and improving the understanding of others. There are other reasons why we should also value free speech in society more broadly, but the university in particular has particular reasons why it in particular ought to be committed to free speech in a particularly deep and robust way. In thinking about the rationale for free scholarly inquiry on a college campus, I want to briefly draw lessons from two sources. One is from John Stuart Mill, the English philosopher and the author of one of the most important tracts, Defending Individual Liberty, produced in the 19th century, and the other is the American experience, in particular with the Sedition Act of 1798. Mill is particularly helpful because he's not primarily interested in the details of constitutional text or even legal interference with free speech as such. Like his contemporary, the French visitor to America, Alexis de Tocqueville, Mill was beginning to worry about the oppressive effects of public opinion in an egalitarian society. For both Mill and Tocqueville, the tyranny of the majority was the emerging danger in democratic societies, but they worried that the majority would make itself felt not only through elections and the use of government power, but also through the more subtle tools of social pressure and private institutions. What would be needed going forward was not only protection against the tyranny of the magistrates, as Mill called it, but also protection against the tyranny of prevailing opinion and feeling. He hoped to identify principles that would not only establish the proper limits of governmental power, but also what he said was the limit to the legitimate interference of collective opinion with individual independence. If we were to appreciate why liberty, and particularly liberty of thought and speech, was good for us and good for society, then the human race would ultimately be happier and better off. Now, Mill did not have modern universities in mind. Our modern academic context suggests the need to modify some of Mill's arguments, but his basic points are helpful in why we should think about free speech in a university setting. And I want to sketch out three basic arguments drawn from Mill in thinking about why free speech um, is valuable in a truth-seeking institution like a university. First is the argument from humility, which begins with the assumption that we are all fallible. Those who seek to suppress speech with which they disagree or that they find offensive 
do so on the assumption that such speech is false and thus not worth hearing. But, as Mill reminds us, to refuse a hearing to an opinion because they are sure that it is false is to assume their certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. We must be humble enough to admit that we might be wrong and those with whom we disagree might be right. Mill knew that maintaining this attitude of humility would be difficult. Long before we began to talk about information bubbles and media echo chambers, Mill pointed out that we all live within social context that deeply shape our preconceptions about the world. We have a tendency to simply accept as true the opinions that happen to be, as he said, shared by all those who surround us. But if we are committed to the pursuit of truth, we must keep an open mind and be willing to question everything that we believe. Mill's plea in the argument from humility is that we keep an open mind and be willing to listen to those with whom we disagree. His challenge in the argument from arrogance is that we be willing to allow others to hear those disagreements as well. We are not only tempted to close our own minds to disagreeable opinions, but we are also tempted to suppress those opinions so that no one else will encounter them either. In the arrogance of our certainty that we already know what the final truth is, we gain confidence to silence those who would question us. Mill's argument from humility is an appeal to our own self-interest. We would be better off if we were to keep an open mind and prepare ourselves for the possibility that we might be wrong. His argument from arrogance is more difficult because the appeal is not to our own self-interest, but to the interest of humanity at large. By closing down debate, we deny others the opportunity to make up their own minds about where the truth might lie. The more certain we are that we already know what the truth is, the more abusive we are likely to be to those who have the temerity to question it. In doing so, we not only block ourselves from following the path of wisdom, but we block others from that path as well. Finally, Mill offers us an argument from conviction. Here again, he appeals to our own self-interest, but he does not um, even require us to embrace the virtue of humility. How do we even know whether the opinions that we hold dear are in fact true? Mill suggests the only way we could be confident in our own opinions is that we have seen them weather a serious challenge. For ideas to really take root and become firm and justifiable convictions, they must be tested in intellectual battle. Every honest scholar should be keenly aware of the weaknesses of their own arguments. The most persuasive advocate knows the opponent's case at least as well as their own. So Mill says, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. His reasons may be good and no one may be able to refute them, but if he is equally unable to refute the reasons on the opposite side, if he does not even know so much what they are, he has no ground for preferring either position. He must be able to hear the arguments of adversaries from persons who actually believe them, who defend them in earnest, and who do, the, who do their very utmost for them. He must know them in their most plausible and persuasive form. He must feel the whole force of the difficulty which the true view of the subject has to encounter and dispose of, else he will never really possess himself of the portion of the truth which meets and removes that difficulty. If we wish to advance knowledge, we need to seek out diversity of thought and be willing to engage in an honest assessment of the merits of our antagonist arguments and the demerits of our own. The second strand of thought relating to freedom of speech that I want to bring out here comes from the Jeffersonian experience in the early republic. The nation's founders were convinced that free speech was essential to Republican government, but they did not have a well-worked-out idea about what exactly that principle of free speech might require. The first serious controversy over the meaning of free speech in America did not come until a decade after the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. 
The Sedition Act of 1798 was passed by the Federalist majority in Congress and made it a federal criminal offense to publish or say anything, quote, false, scandalous, or malicious that might bring the federal government or federal government officials into what the law called contempt or disrepute or to excite against them the hatred of the good people of the United States. The Federalists did not mean for the Sedition Act to be a mere symbolic gesture. Prosecutions were organized out of the office of the U.S. Secretary of State. Jeffersonian newspapers were shut down and their editors were jailed. A particularly cantankerous Republican congressman found himself incarcerated for a fiery speech that he delivered to his constituents. As a practical matter, the constitutional validity of the Sedition Act 1798 was settled by the election of 1800. The Jeffersonians swept the Federalists out of power, capturing both chambers of Congress and the White House and several state houses as well. For the first time, the country witnessed the peaceful transition of power between partisan opponents. The Jeffersonian Congress did not renew the Sedition Act, and the President pardoned those who were still incarcerated under the terms of the Act. For our purposes, I want to call attention to two features of this episode as particularly relevant to our thinking about contemporary debates about free speech on campus. First, the Sedition Act debate highlighted that the distinction between true and false speech was not adequate to protecting free speech. The Federalists promised that they only wanted to punish purveyors of fake news, but the Jeffersonians thought that would likely be a slippery slope. Second, the Sedition Act experience raised doubts about whether there ever was likely to be neutral arbiters to evaluate highly controversial and contested speech. Real liberty, one Federalist congressman insisted, did not include a license to injure others. Few disagreed with that point in the abstract, but the difficulty was determining what counted as an injury to others. The lesson that Americans learned at the end of the 19th century, in the end of the 18th century, was that no one could be trusted with the power to suppress and punish controversial speech. Good intentions to suppress only bad speech counted for little when there was significant disagreement over which particular speech was good or bad. The power to limit speech would inevitably be abused. The only safety was to err on the side of liberty and let the people themselves weigh the value of the speech. Universities are committed to the belief that the best means for advancing knowledge is through the critical scrutiny of ideas, and that the proper goal of a community of scholars is to refine that process of scrutinizing ideas so it is effective and as efficient as possible. Rather than sheltering ideas from criticism, scholars seek to face those criticisms squarely and do their best to evaluate their merits. Knowledge advances by putting ideas to the test of arguments and evidence and by developing habits of critical analysis. While the advance of knowledge is often imperfect, it does not advance at all if criticisms are suppressed rather than investigated. With those principles of free speech in mind, let's consider some applications to current controversies on college campuses. There are many calls to restrict free speech on college campuses in the name of other values, but sometimes the impairment of free speech comes dressed as an expansion of free speech. Although it should rarely be the case, the exercise of free speech by some actually interferes with the exercise of free speech by others, it should be recognized that free speech can only thrive under conditions of appropriate regulation. The best environment for the productive exchange of ideas is not the mosh pit. Anytime there are large groups of people with something to say, some orderly procedures need to be put in place if everyone is going to make themselves heard in an actual collective conversation can take place. Thinking through how best to manage the vigorous exchange of ideas by passionate advocates is important in part because we should recognize the value of protest and dissent on college campuses. Our constitutional law has recognized that in order to effectively exercise the right of free speech, dissenters must be able to choose not only their message, but also its form of delivery. 
dissenters need the freedom to grab the attention of the public, to dramatize their concerns, and convey their message in a way that makes sense and is accessible to both themselves and their intended audience. The increasing protection of dissent is one of the great accomplishments of American constitutional law in the 20th century. Valuable protest and expression of dissent, however, should be distinguished from mere obstruction. Obstruction is intended to prevent disfavored speech from taking place or from being heard. Obstruction can take myriad forms, some posing more serious threats to intellectual life on campus than others, but all working ultimately against free speech. Signs announcing events and publications left in newsstands on campus are easy targets and are often destroyed um, by those who object to the message being communicated. The physical space hosting a speech or a conference can be occupied or disrupted to such a degree that opponents are prevented from speaking. The examples of such obstructions are numerous. Infamously, at Middlebury College in the spring of 2017, activists occupied the auditorium in which the conservative social scientist Charles Murray was to speak. Their mere presence displaced interested listeners who were not able to join the audience to hear the talk, and if protesters occupied every seat, or most every seat of a venue, but then stood in silent protest of the speech, they're still obstructing the speech by preventing those who actually want to listen to it from being able to occupy those seats. At Middlebury, however, the students were not content with a silent protest. Instead, they engaged in a lengthy round of chanting, singing, clapping, and shouting, so it was impossible to speak over them, and in such large numbers, it was not easy to remove them. Eventually, university officials gave up, canceled the lecture, and moved Murray to another room um, to engage in a webcast conversation with a member of the faculty. The protesters followed Murray to the new building, making noise and setting off fire alarms in the hopes of obstructing the webcast as well. When Murray finished the webcast, he and the faculty member were accosted by a mob of protesters as they tried to exit the building, injuring the professors and giving her a concussion. Later that evening, Murray and his party were forced to flee a restaurant where they were eating because protesters had discovered their location and were following them there. Although it's true that such obstructionist tactics sometimes incidentally involve speech, they are not appropriately understood as the exercise of the right to free speech. It happens, for example, that the disability rights advocates at the University of Victoria use megaphones to drown out Princeton philosopher Peter Singer's talk, but they also unplugged the projector that was broadcasting the talk because he was appearing uh, by Skype at the conference. Before they rushed the event itself, they had lobbied the group that was sponsoring Singer's talk to drop him from the program. And then when that failed, they lobbied the University Student Association to revoke the group's permission to host the event on campus at all. Students have a right to ignore speech that they find appalling or unpersuasive, or to take up the challenge to counter such speech with arguments of their own. The students at Middlebury are surely right that they are not obliged to engage with what they regard as debates on settled topics or reopen discussions long ago resolved. What they do not have the privilege to do is insist that no one else be allowed to treat those questions as unsettled or unresolved. Protesters have an appropriate right to organize their own events, to offer contrary arguments, to publish their own views, and circulate them on campus, to take advantage of question and answer sessions at public lectures, to challenge the views of the speaker, and to rally outside the venue um, in order to make sure that those attending uh, will see that there is, in fact, dissent from the perspective being represented within. Such protest activities are consistent with the tumultuous debate and the introduction into the community of a variety of competing arguments and ideas. What protesters do not have the right to do is prevent others from speaking to a willing audience, whether the means deployed to obstruct that speech involve shouting, blowing a horn, or setting off a smoke bomb. 
Some of the most visible uh, recent disputes about free speech on college campuses have focused on outside speakers. The intellectual environment on a college campus would be significantly impoverished if it were reduced to the core of formal teaching and research. A thriving intellectual community makes space for a diverse array of events, from the scholarly expert speaking to a specialized audience, to public figures speaking to the campus community at large about issues of general concern. The modern college campus has long sought to provide venues for public debate as well as for scholarly disputes. Courts have recognized this development in the context of government-supported colleges and have insisted that universities treat student groups and outside speakers in an even-handed fashion. Thus, when the University of Virginia denied access to a generally available student activities fund to a student group that wanted to publish a campus magazine offering a Christian perspective on campus life, the court emphasized that the university could not play favorites in providing resources to student groups. Having made funds available to student groups to create campus publications, the university may not engage in what it called viewpoint <coughs> discrimination and place unequal burdens on the speech of some students because of the specific motivating ideology or the opinion or perspective of the speaker. When Texas A&M University refused to recognize the gay student services as a student group and the University of Southern Mississippi refused to recognize a chapter of the Mississippi Civil Liberties Union, a federal circuit court emphasized to those universities that once a college had opened its doors to a wide range of student groups, it could not prohibit groups offering competing messages. Even when the message was unpopular, offensive in the eyes, eyes of university administrators or alumni, or even at odds with the government's own laws then on the books. To the officials of the Virginia Commonwealth University who wanted the Gay Alliance for Students, uh, who uh, wanted to ban the Gay Alliance of Students for promoting what it called aberrant, even sickening ideas, and behavior, a circuit court pointed out the student associations devoted to advocacy of political, social, legal, and other objectives are part of higher education and useful in the preparation for future life. While individual university officials, campus chaplain, chaplains, instructors, and students could forcefully advocate for their own preferred values, those arguments must compete in the marketplace of ideas and students were free to choose whether or not to accept them. At the same time, we should recognize what controversial outside speakers contribute to a campus and what they do not. The faculty hired to teach and research at a university are evaluated by their peers for the quality of their understandings of their disciplinary subject. We think the pursuit of truth can be advanced by rigorously evaluating scholarly work and would-be scholars and certifying those that can pass through those fires and demonstrate their worth. We do not expect the same from outside speakers who might pass through campus to speak to student groups. We would hope that a student gets better and not just different information from taking a course in the sociology department than from attending a speaker series sponsored by the college Republicans. That does not mean the latter is not worthwhile, but it should be taken for what it is. Even so, if the university were to close down the student group speaker series, asserting that students should not get mixed messages by having their course content challenged by outside speakers, then we would rightfully worry about whether or not the university had the courage of its own convictions. Outside speakers add to the vibrancy of intellectual life on a college campus, but the scholarly center of the university is its own faculty. The notion of academic freedom was developed over the course of the 20th century to protect that vital core of a modern university. In short, the concept of academic freedom asserts that professors should be free to pursue the production and dissemination of their expert knowledge in accord with professional standards as set by their professional peers, 
Um, and, uh, and faculty members are not to be punished by university administrators or trustees for research questions they choose, and they should be able to pursue the conclusions that they reach without concern about what campus administrators or trustees might think of those conclusions. They're not to be directed on what they teach or how to teach it. They're not to be disciplined for speaking out about internal matters or university policy uh, or university governance or external matters of public concern. If university officials were to patrol what's sometimes called the extramural speech of faculty and punish faculty members who stepped out of line, they would effectively say to members of the faculty that they cannot afford the luxury of ranging thought and bold speech, as the AAUP, AAUP put it early in the 20th century, or campuses would then lose the stimulus of clashing opinions and would become havens of cautious mediocrity. A campus that could not tolerate differences of personal opinion on political, religious, and social questions could hardly be expected to create an environment in which scholars could unflinchingly pursue the truth and hold up accepted wisdom to skeptical inquiry. In recent years, there's been a steady parade of professors getting themselves into hot water because of extramural speech. Sometimes institutions have stood up for the freedom of individual faculty members to say and do controversial, offensive, and wrong-headed things. But they not infrequently fail to respect or defend basic commitments to academic freedom. The pressure to cave in to the demands that the university excise scandalous members of faculty is often intense and a necessary step um, toward resisting such demands is an appreciation of what the mission of the university even is and how robust commitment of freedom of speech is necessary to that mission. The basic principle that faculty members should be free to be engaged citizens and the campuses should be sanctuaries for heterodox views remains true. But the furor that can be ignited by extramural speech has only intensified. The Kansas Board of Regents amply illustrated the dangers in 2014 when it adopted a policy authorizing university presidents to terminate tenured faculty members for, quote, improper use of social media, which was understood to include communications that university administrators deemed contrary to the best interests of the university. The new policy was adopted after the regents grew frustrated that it was not possible to fire a tenured journalism professor who had posted a tweet saying that blood is on the hands of the National Rifle Association after a civilian contractor um, shot a dozen people at the Washington Navy Yard. Unsurprisingly, academics thought the new social media policy was deeply at odds with the principle of free speech on campus. As one political scientist noted, it would be easy to imagine that a blog post about her current research on same-sex marriage could be regarded as contrary to the interests of the university by regents who had at that time been appointed by a Kansas governor who was leading the charge against same-sex marriage. There is no clear divide between extramural speech and the core scholarly work of academics, and policies designed to restrict the former will inevitably affect the latter. If the mission of the university is to foster vigorous debate in order to advance our understanding of what might be true about the world, then it must endeavor to preserve the conditions under which genuine exchange of ideas and views can take place. If members of the scholarly community are committed to intellectual inquiry and learning, then they must be, at the very least, be committed to refraining from silencing those with whom they disagree. Mill would have hoped that in our best moments, we ourselves would be willing to engage and learn from those with whom we disagree, and including those with whom we disagree most strongly. But he insisted that even in our worst moments, we must allow others to engage with and learn from those with whom we disagree. Abandoning that most basic principle of liberal tolerance condemns society to ignorance 
and rule by naked force. If universities are to operate on the outer boundaries of the state of knowledge and to push those boundaries further outward, they must be places where new, unorthodox, controversial, and disturbing ideas can be raised and scrutinized. If students are to prepare themselves to critically engage the wide range of perspectives and problems that they will encounter out in the world across their lifetimes, they must learn to grapple with and critically examine ideas that they find difficult and offensive. For, for more than a century, universities have been committed to the mission of advancing and disseminating knowledge and have recognized that the free-ranging exchange of ideas was essential to the realization of that mission. They have often pursued that mission perfectly, and they have sometimes needed to be called to account to better appreciate and work toward the realization of their own ideals. Recognizing and respecting the principles of free speech is difficult and challenging, but there is no alternative if we are dedicated to the pursuit of truth, and the pursuit of truth is the noble, important mission of the modern university. Thank you.